and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Yukashi Anoyo, who is a global packaging executive who has expertise both in mass and prestige. And we are going to get into how things work in packaging with the person who has an intimate knowledge of it. Welcome to the show, Yukashi. Thank you for having me, Ms. Corinne. I'm so excited to be here. Really happy to have you here. Yukashi, could you give us uh, your 30-second bio, please? Yes, I work in packaging, and my background's actually in industrial and systems engineering, and I ended up in packaging. But what I really work on on a regular basis is I really look at emerging as well as growth opportunities that support the development and execution of upstream product launches through a package delivery system and a packaging lens. And it results really in cross-platform opportunities, more effective solutions, blah, blah, blah. If you hear anything, really when it comes down to it, my role is all about providing package delivery solutions of optimal form, fit, and function. So if you remember anything else, remember that packaging is really about executing on form, fit, and function. Another thing that I want to highlight that I'm really most passionate about is that in addition to the many hats that I wear within the company and the company that is Estee Lauder Companies, the one thing I'm most proud of and most passionate about is being global advisor for the Women's Leadership Network. This is a recently established employee resource group that was established in 2017, and my responsibilities have been to partner with senior executive leadership to really strategize, create, and drive key initiatives centered around mentorship, sponsorship, business alignment, philanthropy, and professional development for all women within the company, both personally and professionally. This includes everything from developing, leading, communicating, executing on various events and programs internally as well as externally on a global scale. This experience to me, I really do believe that it's allowed me to connect and network with cross-functional team members that I wouldn't typically engage with daily. And it's really empowered me to innovate beyond the field of packaging, if that makes sense, and allows me to build more collaborative partnerships through various areas by really encouraging a true platform for diversity, which is really important to me. Let me say a word about diversity in the beauty industry. It is really important not only to find the talent, but to nurture it, grow talent, and retain talent so that people are promoted, they grow through the ranks, and they can make beauty their career. It's really great that you're working with this group for a couple of reasons. First, having exposure to women across the company in areas that are not related to your direct work is really important. It gives you opportunity to converse about lots of different subjects. And as you promote diversity, you're able to bring ideas to lots of different areas of the company. And secondly, 
the idea of creating a seat at the table in beauty is really critical. And the work that you're doing within this group allows Estee Lauder not only to recruit, but retain and promote and create growth so that they have sustainable careers in the industry. So I really love that you're doing this work. Well, thank you. I really do love just broadening my horizon. I'm a constant learner. I love to learn. So anything that allows me to expand my knowledge or even my experience is always beneficial. And that's just one of the many ERGs I'm a part of, but that's one I'm most passionate about. I think that's great. Was the beauty industry a destination or a detour for you? It was definitely a detour, I have to say. It's actually very interesting because if anyone knew me in high school or even before that, I was a tomboy. From the time I was 10 years old, I was playing basketball. I intended to go to the WNBA. It started in 1996. That was my plan. If I didn't make it in the WNBA, I was going overseas to the CBA because that was a thing that women basketball players did before um, it became a professional sport. And it's interesting because engineering was my fallback option, if, if you could believe that. I was playing and I, I got into school. I went to Rutgers University, by the way, and I got into school actually through an athletic scholarship and I had to pick a major. So I said, you know what? I do not like to read. I'm one of those type of people that really need to understand why things are their way they are. Why does one plus one has to equal two, nothing else? For me, the technical space was the way to go. Engineering was the way to go. And I chose industrial engineering. It was very interesting to me in that discipline because it's a business area. It's a business discipline. And it focuses on the different aspects of engineering, whether it's material science, whether it's chemical, whether it's electrical, mechanical. You're really learning about all the different disciplines within engineering in order to develop process improvement. And that's what really attracted me to industrial engineering. It ties in also into how I got my first job because, and even before I graduated, I was it was finals time. And I'm walking by the engineering office in my building and I saw this posting for an opportunity as an industrial engineer in Long Island. And I'm like, eh, Long Island, I'm from Jersey, I don't know, but I needed a job. I was about to graduate. You know, I didn't want to go back to my parents' house. I wanted to be on my own. Like I wanted to be able to say I made it. Interestingly enough, I called the recruiter on the phone, which I know no one really does anymore. And they told me about the opportunity. They said it was Dell Labs, which is now Cody, and is for working in a manufacturing plant in Farmingdale. And I'm like, Farmingdale, Long Island? I wasn't really too excited about potentially moving to Long Island, working in a plant. But again, it was graduation time. I needed a job. More importantly than that, I really wanted a career, especially because I didn't really have as many internship opportunities as I would have liked that were specifically focused in my field. After connecting with the recruiter, I wound up faxing my resume over to him. And then I drove out to Long Island. I got the interview. And that's when I would meet my future manager. When did you decide basketball wasn't it? First semester when I got no playing time and I was not doing as well as what I would have liked (laughs) in my classes. And 
it was like you have to make a decision, you know. I had to do well because you need to do well in order to keep your scholarships, right? So you have to prioritize. You know, you go from high school being like one of the top athletes in your school, and then you go and you're just like a peon. (laughs) You're thinking, okay, yes, I'm going to start. I'm going to be out there. And no. So I had to really choose and focus, especially after first semester, because, you know, it really sets you up for the next four or five years depending on what you focus and major on, but it really does make a difference. So you do have to make that decision early too. And you have to declare a major, usually your end of your first year anyway. So what was it like working in a plant? To finish that, I didn't even end up working at the plant. I went out to Long Island to interview with this lady who wound up being my manager, but it was interesting. I was interviewing for an industrial engineering position, but when I went out there, She had two packaging people quit on her. And she was like, I know you're out here for an industrial engineering job, but I actually have this opportunity for you in packaging. And I said, packaging, that's interesting. Didn't know too much about it other than that we did have a major program at school for it. And what would I be doing, boxes all day? And she was like, no, you work on um, Sally Hansen, which I was loving, and New York color and all these other brands. And she said she chose me for consideration because she liked that I didn't have a packaging degree, which I thought was interesting. It was more that I had a transferable technical skill set. And she valued that diversity of thought in that field because she had a whole bunch of packaging people already. So you wanted to mix it up. And she also said, you know what, try it for a year. If you don't like it, you're more than welcome to go to the plant. And packaging, by the way, sits in Uniondale at corporate headquarters. So I never had to even work in a plant, which was so exciting. So I took it. And honestly, almost 20 years later, I never looked back. That's really interesting. I love that she talked about transferable skills because often we don't think about the skills that we have that could work in other areas. So you learned early that you had transferable skills with that industrial engineering background. What did you learn in that first job that set you up for the success that you've had in your career? I would say there were maybe two things that I would say which most resonate with me with that first job. One, the ability to wear multiple hats. Dell Labs at the time, before it got acquired by Cody, it was a small engine. You know, you imagine all the products and the business that they were doing. But when you're at a small company, you are the packaging person. You can be the purchasing person. You can be the quality person. All these different supply chain operational person. I did first buys. I was working on the displays that you saw in CVS. The planograms working with creative. Being at a small company, you're working closer with team members and five of you can sit at the table and a decision can be made. And that's what I learned the most about is learning about other people's roles and understanding how they work. The other thing I would say is the importance of relationships. I still connect with people from my first job to this day. It's almost like that training ground because you're doing so much, you learn so much from each other and you get to know each other. And those relationships carry on throughout this industry. I always say that this industry is like Cheers, the TV show. Everybody knows your name, whether it's directly or indirectly. So it's really important to maintain those relationships throughout the years because they do open doors for you. Do you think it's important for engineers to consider beauty as a destination 
in terms of a career? Absolutely. I mean, the only reason it wasn't a destination for me is because I didn't know about it. Yeah, there was L'Oreal and Clark, but I didn't know about beauty. When I think of beauty industry, I think marketing. I think of that front end experience. There, I don't think about what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, you may think there's chemistry because of formula, but you don't think about that technical side, that true executional side. And not to say nothing, but the beauty business is a multi-billion dollar business. It's here to stay, honestly. And it's an area that's based heavily on having a good understanding on all the various areas and all business functions. And it touches so many different pieces of all kinds of disciplines. And it provides you with a foundation. And I think that's really important to see. And also what I really love about beauty in general and why engineers should consider it is because you see an immediate impact. You can go to the store and look at your product that you worked on and you're like, oh, I was just stressed all about getting that two color approved. And look, that consumer doesn't even know that that's not even the right blue that should be up there. <laughs> so I just think that it's just so tangible because you can see, you know, when people are carrying around something that you had your hand in helping to create or helping to increase sales or helping even to tap people and celebrities, influencers, and everyone talking about your product is priceless to me. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And you can be excited about the work that you're doing because you see it in everyday life. You see how it's impacting people's lives, the end customer, which you you know, you know don't see them necessarily when you're sitting at your desk or whatever you're doing day to day. But when you go into a store or you go on social media and you hear somebody talking about a product you had a hand in, that has to be priceless. Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. I do love the problem solving piece because it also brings the technical side of it because you're always thinking like, think about the times you've had something in your purse and it just leaked everywhere. Just the fact that I'm a consumer and I'm also a process and a um, package developer, and I'm trying to solve for that, I'm thinking, okay, when I'm doing my testing, what happens if this person has their lipstick and it falls, you know, and the bullet falls out? I need to make sure that it's developed in the right way so that something doesn't crack in someone's purse and they're upset because there's liquid all over and they're damaged their purse. So it's just, again, that mindset of, the importance, I think, you know, most, if not all engineers should consider it. And it's not just about beauty, you know, it can go span so much. You can go into chemistry. You don't have to go into engineering. Two questions. Let me go to this first one. What is a typical day like? What are the things that are you are doing in a day if you're working in packaging? Besides sitting in meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we say Zoom calls, Teams calls, Skype. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's very collaborative in packaging. You're working closely with marketing. Marketing's working on a plan. They want to launch something in the coming year, six months, whatever have you. And you are working. They'll say, I want to launch this new lipstick. And then your creative team says, okay, I envision that it's going to look like this. It's going to have pearls and all of this. So my role is to ask the right questions. 
is to talk about R&D and say, okay, what type of formula are you going to use? Is it going to be a soft formula? Is it going to be a hard formula? Uh, What is it compatible with in terms of what's in the formula? And in that, I have to know what materials are compatible with that formula so that it doesn't crack, it doesn't leak, it does, you know, all those kind of things. And on top of that, now I have to go and make it happen. So I have to find someone who can really execute on the design that my creative person envisioned. I have to come back now and say, okay, this is what this XYZ supplier said that they could do. It's going to cost X. Does that align with your cost of goods? And based on how you're going to price it, can you afford to launch this? Yes or no? Marketing comes back and they say, yes, we get team buy-in. And we all agree, of course, with quality and making sure that this is something that we can actually manufacture, produce, and scale and put in store. And then the minute we get that approval, we're off and running. Then we become project managers. We're looking at blueprints. We're making sure that the dimensions line up. We're coordinating package testing, making sure that we're doing the right types of tests because we have to be able to basically anticipate anything the consumer is going to do to damage the product to make sure we don't get any kind of backlash or complaints because you want to put out a quality project. Again, your name is behind it. So you don't want to be that person that didn't make sure you crossed your I's and dotted your T's. So that's really what it is. It's like working on it from end to end. And then you go into the supply chain and packaging it off, making sure you have it in the right type of box so that when it's shipped to Macy's or shipped to Nordstrom, that it doesn't break in transit. And then it has to go on the shelf and then it's on the shelf. And then you have those big lights at Macy's. You got to make sure that the formula doesn't change color over time. So it's all those kind of attributes that go into a day in the life of packaging. And it's daily because you can be working on anywhere from 50 to 100 launches at any given time. So you have to manage all these different launches in the same kind of manner. So that's what makes it interesting. And no day is different, honestly. So you're constantly having to pivot. I have another question. Like you must have to really know organization and deadlines, but is there any other unsung skill you need in this particular role to make things happen? You really need to be agile, honestly. I would say you need to be agile. You need to be able to understand that we're in a fast moving consumer goods industry. Things are going to be changing. It relies heavily on trends for the most part you have to be able to gracefully pivot. And I also want to say, you also probably need to make sure that you're aware. I always like to say, know the difference between what was said and what you heard. Read between the lines. Because sometimes people don't know what they want. It's just like if someone says no, it's not yet, right? So just understand what the difference is. That's a really key point. And I can think that's a learned skill too. Yeah. Being aware of what's new in the industry must be critical. How do you stay abreast of all the changes that are happening? Because you're you're staying abreast of things happening in your company, but you also have to stay abreast of things that are happening in industry in terms of innovation. And I know that innovation is part of your current role. Absolutely. You have to stay on top of it. Again, if you don't have a passion for this, you're not going to be engaged. You're not going to be on top of what's going on. You have to know what you're doing, what your competitor is doing. You have to know what the trends are, what's coming down. I also like looking outside the industry. What is the automotive industry doing? What are they doing from a process improvement 
perspective. I go to a lot of trade shows. I listen to webinars. I'm part of so many different beauty organizations, CW, SIBS, Cosmetic Industry of Buyers and Sellers. I stay actively involved to make sure that I'm in the know. And again, it's also networking too, because if you talk to people, they'll tell you, they'll give you some insight. And I also make sure that I'm thinking globally. I mean, if there's one thing I've learned from even my current company is that you always have to think globally. So you have to know what the next region is doing, the next uh, country, because that trend can come here, especially in the digital age that we live in today. You've worked on like Dell, uh, Sally Hansen was mass and you're working on prestige brands now. What are the differences in the approaches to the business? Okay, so mass, you are basically tied to Walmart and CVS. They have fixed requirements. You have to deliver on that. I would say no matter what um, area, whether it's mass, mastige, prestige, you have certain key moments that don't change. Christmas doesn't change. So you can't say, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to have that delivered January 15th and you were supposed to deliver in time for Christmas. With CVS and those kind of stores, what I learned is that, and in mass in general, it's really about the next trend. It's really about focusing on what I can deliver quickly and the cost of goods are different. The approach is different. How you pack off Packaging is different because you're looking more about in mass about what it looks like when it sits in the store from a shelf space, from how it looks on a blister card because you're working with a blister card, how the label looks on the package. When you start to go in like into a prestige area, it's more about the quality. What is the consumer going to experience when she receives the project product as opposed to, okay, she saw it on a display and because it had all these bells and whistles, I'm going to buy it. That's not usually how it works. In Prestige, I don't want to say it's not less about quality and mass, but it's really about delivering the consumer experience. There's a big emphasis on that in Prestige. And it's translated throughout the entire company, throughout all areas of the department. And that's the biggest thing I've seen versus just get it out the door. Right. And the experience at the prestige level is sensorial, it's visual, the smell, it's all of the ways that the consumer can be engaged with that product. And you're selling not just the experience, the experience tied to the product, associated with the product. So that is very, very different. Do you have a team that you work on directly in your department? Yeah. So in my current role now, we have a, well, we're working on more strategic initiatives and really working on more upstream what's happening future state. So it involves a lot of cross-functional teams. Our team is working on, okay, this is what we're working on now. What should we be working on in the future? Then you want to tap into your consumer insights team and say, okay, what are you seeing in the market from that lens? Your marketing team, what are you seeing from a formula standpoint? What's the next new, I don't know, you know, product that's coming, whether it's Cushing Compact, whether it's a lip gloss. So it's really about aligning all of those teams and seeing what we can come with or co-create with to develop something that a consumer can benefit from and something that makes it so desirable the consumer has to have. And that's really what we are always about. It's about the consumer first mindset. And you have to think like that versus just making a sale. With that in mind, how do you identify top talent for your team? For me, it's willingness to learn beyond your current role, 
versus looking to maintain a status quo. There are some people that, you know, they're purely executional and in packaging, you can be executional. But I think for me, what stands out is someone says, you know, I want to learn more. I want to do this. I want to have a stretch assignment. I just want to understand why I'm doing something versus, okay, I have to do it or it's not my responsibility to do it. I think those people who come and say, you know, tell me more, or I'm interested in this, or even I'm interested in just doing something beyond the current role I'm in, whether it's volunteering, just taking a larger presence outside of your day-to-day, that to me stands out more than anything. I love the idea of a stretch assignment. Yeah, and I take them today too. So I love it. You've pivoted in terms of what you do. You went from packaging to more strategic innovation, taking that knowledge with you. When do you know when it's time to make a change, whether it's job or a company? So for me, it was interesting because after I graduated, it wasn't until like maybe uh, 10 years after working in packaging that I had that aha moment. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to spend the next 30 years just doing the same packaging. And it ties into I wasn't feeling challenged anymore. And I think that's a flag number one. I took it upon myself to go back to business school and get my MBA because I wanted to learn the broader side of the business. And doing that just opened doors for me. And I understood that you want to be an asset to a company. When you're starting to become a liability and not in terms of making mistakes, but it's more about you come to the realization that your personal and your professional goals serve more as a liability than an asset to the company. And I think Also, I would say the third thing, because I think it's a combination of the three. It's not any one. But when your beliefs are no longer in line with the company or the brand you're representing, that to me is uh, just the final flag that says, you know what, it's time to move. Because again, ties into now I'm not serving as an optimal asset for you and this company. I think that you hit the nail on the head with the beliefs in alignment. And sometimes it's you and you've changed. And sometimes the company has just decided that it wants to go in a different direction. And you have to do check-ins to see where you both are so that you're not caught underwear and then decide this is not the place for me. But I do like the idea of making yourself an asset in your environment and going out and acquiring new skills. You have a different lens of the business than you would had you just gotten an advanced degree in packaging, for example. Now you can have conversations you couldn't have before. Well, you could have them, but you could have deeper conversations because you have a fuller understanding of cross-functional, of the things that are happening in different teams. I always say to myself, my undergrad degree allowed me to think because you, you go to college with the ability to think. And my MBA allowed me to think differently. That the difference between the two. And yeah, I paid for it. It was expensive, but to me, it was totally worth it because I think differently and it's really enabled me to grow and be challenged even when I may not feel challenged and create my own path. Because in my current company, I've created my own path. Those paths, those roles didn't necessarily exist. I created that opportunity. And as you did that, what did you need to do? What personal trait did you tap into to have those conversations? It's really the ability to ask questions and to network. For me, it's always about networking. I believe that you need to be nice to every single person, no matter what their level. I'm of the mindset you treat everyone with respect. And 
that has been the biggest thing for me. So being able to network, understand people's roles and responsibilities, and just getting an under better understanding. I always say, if I can't leave with three takeaways of the person I meet, then that's a problem. And I make that my goal anytime I meet someone new. I need to have three key takeaways that I can learn from them and understand so that if I meet them again or see them again, that I can clearly articulate who this person is, what they represent, and who they are. I think that's a great tip for anybody to take. Ask more probing questions and questions that allow you to learn not only about the person, but the things that interest them. They'll remember you the next time because you bring it up. Yeah. And I also don't limit myself to beauty. Like, I mean, I've met you actually outside of beauty. Yes, you're a beauty editor, but I mean, different industry altogether. I looked at people and I've networked with people in so many different industries and they all intersect at some point. And that's how I look at it. So you just never know who you can tap into. And it's not about asking for things. It's really just about knowledge sharing more than anything. I look at networking as knowledge sharing as it more so than what's in it for me. Yeah, that's another key takeaway. That's great advice to to look at it like knowledge sharing. Now let's move on to our fast track questions. What was the first beauty product you ever purchased? On my own, it was actually lip gloss for MAC. I was in high school and I was like, I wanted my lip gloss so shiny. And everyone was telling me about this lip gloss. And I had my first job. And I'll never forget, I walked into the department store at Macy's and I said, oh, I'll buy this little MAC lip gloss. It was in a, a natural clear tube. It had the dome cap. And then I put it on. My lips was shiny. Everything stuck to it. But it was so you can tell me anything because I spent $14 on a lipstick versus $5 in the uh, drugstore. So <laughs> yeah, that was a portent of the future for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could. And I was religious about if they had replenishment systems back then, I would have been that person going every month because I was that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> What's the latest product you tried? You know, we get so much product, but being here in quarantine, I had to actually buy product, which is so upsetting. But, you know, we have a discount. So the product that I actually always wanted to try was La Mer. I splurge. I never like to splurge on myself. I mean, those are my weaknesses. I would say, you know, Joel and Candles and La Mer. But I actually paid for the La Mer body balm. Oh my God, this body balm, it like just, it it was just light on my skin and it just made me feel better. When they say people are spending more at home, I am probably attributing to that because when I look at my skin glisten on my skin from that balm, it's so smoothing and it's like the combination of a lotion and oil and a gel. It's just like amazing transformational experience. Yes. And I wouldn't have even thought to buy it, but I was just like, you know what? I need to just try something different. So you get so used to a routine sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it was a great purchase. Yes, it was. What's the beauty advice you either live by or leave alone? I live by washing my face every day. I don't care if it's 4 a.m. and I'm going to be up at six. If I get home 
I am washing my face because I am of the mindset that a great look starts with healthy skin. I need to make sure my skin is healthy. I can't stand having makeup on my bed. I can't stand having sticky lashes, all of that. So for me, it's making sure I'm cleansing, I'm toning, moisturizing. That is my routine. I don't care how tired I am. I will do that. And is there anything you leave alone? Any beauty advice that you leave alone? Strobing. That's me personally. It's not for everyone. I'm one of those people. (laughs) I I do away with. But I also think that I also go by the mantra of as many things as you want to put on, take away one thing because I don't like too much makeup. But I also think that we also try so many things that, you know, just take away one piece. But I will never leave the house without lip gloss, lipstick at minimum. Okay. (laughs) Even during quarantine? Yes. I need my lips moisturized. (laughs) Yeah, the foundation and all of that, not so much, but I'm actually more stringent on my rituals as it comes to cleansing because I really, over this quarantine time, but yeah, at least a couple of days I want to dress up and actually feel like I'm doing something. (laughs) So I will wear makeup. Yeah, that's cool. Who gave you the best career advice and what was it? It was one of my mentors, and it was a quote that I've always remembered from, I think, William Randolph Hearst, and it was focus on the objective, not the obstacle. And it's so important to me, and I live with that to this day throughout my career, because you can let the obstacle inundate you so much that you no longer focus on the objective, or worse, you pivot because that obstacle is wearing you down. And we all experience it. I mean, there are days I experience it. But for me, as long as I continue to focus on what my ultimate objective is, then that is the ideal path for me. I do agree that so many of us get the obstacle can paralyze you. You don't even pivot. You just stand there and look at it. <laughs> and <laughs> and you, you're like, I don't know what to do. So you don't even think about anything. But would you think of the objective instead, then you're constantly having to ask yourself, well, what's another way I can get there? Yeah, it constantly calms me down. Honestly, I have to say I'm an Aries by nature. I always have to like I have this independence. I have this objective. I have to achieve like I have to know the why. And if like there's an obstacle, it just becomes so challenging. But, you know, you just okay. We're just going to get there. We're going to get there eventually. That works for me. I think that's great advice for anyone. What's the best interview prep tip you can offer someone who's looking for a job? Oh my gosh, be prepared. There's nothing worse than someone coming in who doesn't even know where the company was founded, um, the year it started, who the CEO is, just the basic stuff. I mean, I think that's important. You really should even know who you're interviewing with. I always take make it a habit that in my past, what I've done is, you know, just do a quick Google of the person so you know who you're about to meet and what their path is. Understand the department, how it works, just the basic things so you can go in there with more informed questions. There's nothing worse than meeting with a candidate and they you're like, oh, well, yeah, your company was founded in Paris. Or was it founded in London? Or they're asking me questions that they should basically know. Just to me, it's table stakes just to be in the room. So to me, it shows a lack of preparedness. So I am of the mindset you should always be prepared no matter what. I always live by the mantra of being prepared and even being over-prepared. Definitely. And I have had that experience in interviewing people where they will just have a general sense of something 
and have not had any details. Like when you talk about editorial, for example, I want to be a fashion editor. Okay. So tell me who your favorite designers are and you can't name one. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you who's the couture designer. Who's If you have no idea, you should not fix your mouth to say these things because it shows that you just like the idea of it, not necessarily the actual function of the job because you haven't done the research. And for me, it also flags as you're looking just for a job versus a career. I look for people who want a career in beauty. That's the only way you're going to stay here. And if you're just looking for a job, then you're not going to be here long. What makes a candidate memorable for you? Asking questions, but asking the right questions and really gaining clarity on what is expected in their role. But now I'm thinking about it. It's also about them knowing their fit, right? Because they're really asking questions. I had someone ask me, well, you know what, your positioning, what does it feel like on a day-to-day basis? Like I had a student tell me, is it collaborative or is it independent? And your position when it comes to flexible hours, flexible schedules, but being specific about it and saying, you know, this is why, you know, and again, it goes back to what I said, those three takeaways. If I can remember three things that they asked me that made me think, well, I should know this. (laughs) (laughs) is memorable. Honestly, I really feel like when someone really thinks about their fit in the organization that they're applying for, that's gold. That means they really want to be there and they're not looking to just be there for a couple months and go to the next company. The last question I want to ask you is it complete the sentence. Beauty is. Wow. So I was going to say beauty is everything. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say beauty is, is my business. <laughs> then um, beauty is evergreen. Yeah. As you said, you want somebody who makes beauty their career. You want to hire them. You have made it your career. So that's why I wanted to ask, what does beauty mean to you? Like beauty is everything to you. It's your, it you is. Know. And like I said, if you would ask me even 25 years ago, if I would be interested in beauty, the town girl who played basketball and had lip gloss, that was the most makeup she ever wore. I would never say beauty, but now I can't even see my life without it. It's just so interconnected to fashion, to entertainment. And because I have a passion for all of that, I just don't see not being in beauty, honestly. Well, I think that is the right place to stop. You can't top that. (laughs) And even when I go, I'm still going to add beauty attributes to wherever I go. This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Yukashi. I really enjoyed this discussion. I learned a lot about the role that packaging plays in terms of making the beauty business successful because of the packaging. What's really interesting is each component, each area of beauty kind of contributes to the make or break success of it. If the packaging isn't right, it wouldn't be successful. If the marketing weren't right, it wouldn't be successful. Like each area must succeed in order for a brand or product to be successful. And I agree. And I want to thank you again for just highlighting all the different areas within the business, because I know, you know, most people, again, when they think of beauty, they think of the front end, like I call it the front end, the commercial end, the marketing piece, but there are just so many different areas you can go to in business. So I would just say, if I had one last thing to say is no matter what your discipline is, there's always going to be an opportunity for you in beauty in general. And even if you majored in something else, there's always still a fit. You can always learn. 
So you never stop learning and you can always learn in beauty. What exists today won't even exist in the future and vice versa. So it's really important that you're highlighting all these different areas within beauty because there's just so many people that are going to be coming up and looking to this opportunity that you presented to us today and saying, oh, wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And the reason I started this podcast is I thought I'd love to, you know, have a passion for equipping young people with the skills, but this medium is almost like edutainment in terms of they're learning the stuff and they're being entertained and they can investigate further the areas that they like, but they wouldn't come in blind saying, well, no one ever told me about that because yeah, there are people talking to me about it who are telling you (laughs) and all you have to do is listen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top. And the most important step is the first one. So start right here.